In this episode of 92i Talks, Preet Bharara, former federal prosecutor for the Southern District of New York, discusses his new book, Doing Justice, about how our justice system works and why we need to find the humanity in our legal system and our society with Jeff Greenfield. The conversation was recorded on June 6, 2019, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. It's a rowdy crowd tonight. That's interesting. Uh, so look, thanks to television, by now millions of us know all about the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York. He pursues and partners with super-rich financial royalty. He suborns perjury. He blackmails potential witnesses. <laughs> he breaks several parts of the U.S. criminal code. And in his, in his private life, he regularly engages in sadomasochistic sex with his wife. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's the fictional U.S. attorney played by Paul Giamatti. Uh, he's not here tonight. <laughs> In real life, the real-life U.S. attorney for eight years who began that work in 2009 and that ended shortly after President Trump took office is Preet Bharara. He is the son of South Asian immigrants. He took his degrees from Harvard and Columbia Law, first in a private practice, then into a series of public jobs, including counsel to Senate Democratic leader Chuck Schumer, and then most prominent of all is U.S. attorney in what's widely considered the most significant U.S. attorney's office in the country. And it was there. <laughs> I see now, uh, you brought some of your ex-employees, huh? All right, <laughs> why not? It was there that Preet launched a series of prosecutions that caused a great deal of attention, including prosecuting both the Democratic Speaker of the New York State Assembly and the Republican Senate Majority Leader of the Senate. When you count, <laughs> when you count up all the officials that were put away under his watch, it turns out that in New York, when they talk about term limits, they mean something very, very different. <laughs> it was also from this perch that uh, Barrara took on several prominent Wall Street figures, gaining convictions against a series of insider traders while also drawing some questions about why some of the very topmost masters of the universe that nearly brought the economy down never spent a day in prison. We'll talk about that. He deals with that in uh, one of the many things he deals with in this book, Doing Justice. The book is, for my money, a, a fascinating account of how a lawyer thinks about what the law is, how you prosecute, how you deal with matters of reasonable doubt with putting people away who you may not think deserve to be put away and vice versa. The book does have, by the way, not that much to say about his firing or about President Trump's behavior in office, but he's had a great deal to say about that on his two podcasts, uh, Stay Tuned with Preet and Cafe Insider. So when you think about the comments of Attorney General Barr, very much in the news, the legal struggle coming to a boil, perhaps, between the Congress and the executive branch, there are very few people who I think would be more valuable to hear from than our guest, so we should count ourselves lucky. Say hello to Preet Bharara. <clears throat> All right. I, my whole family is here, apparently. <laughs> All I can tell you is that when I got fired, I never got that kind of reaction. <laughs> so let's get to the crucial stuff first. Do you watch Billions? Uh, 
Sometimes. <laughs> the reason what I'm getting at semi-seriously is that the people, when the people who created Veep went to Washington, it turns out that a lot of real-life people who work in Washington would say to them, all right, obviously it's up at there's a higher truth going on here in the behavior of, of the miscreants of Veep. And so I guess my, my question is, leaving the more colorful parts of that show aside, is there any part of that portrait of your office that you recognize as having any com comparison to reality? <clears throat> um, thanks for starting with that. Uh, I guess some. Can I just tell a quick story when people ask me about that show? I'd like to just relate to folks. As you mentioned, um, uh, not only am I, I'm an immigrant, my parents are, are proud immigrants from India, and they were very excited when the show got announced. And I had dinner with a uh, noted Indian American actor, Paul Giamatti, and we, <laughs> we talked. Yeah, you didn't know that, did you? Um, Paul Giamatti and Freddie Mercury, both. And, <laughs> and we, had, we had dinner, and I told my parents, and they, you know, they told all their friends, uh, who are a lot of Indian immigrant families <clears throat> in New Jersey and elsewhere, you know, watch this show. It's based on Preet. <laughs> um, and, and, and they told, they told every, my mom went on Facebook, watched the show. And, and then the show premieres, and as you have alluded to, how many people have seen the show? Uh, so if you haven't, just by, by way of background, so the, the, the first episode in the first season <clears throat> begins with, um, literally it opens up on the United States Attorney for the Southern District of New York on his back, uh, shirtless, with his hands tied. And, um, and into the scene, you, uh, you see a, a stiletto-heeled woman's foot uh, step on him, and she's smoking a cigarette, and then she puts the cigarette out on his chest, uh, and he yelps or whatever, you know, supine U.S. attorneys do. <laughs> and then... And then, and then she, to assuage his pain, um, she engages in a bodily function on him. That's how the show starts. My parents have never mentioned the show again. Okay. Um, so, look, there's some things that are accurate. People, people, people work really hard. I haven't seen all the, the, the seasons. Um, the one I'm, and, and I like the producers, and I met with them, and I talked with them, and we were very you know, gracious with them before they turned the U.S. attorney into a complete criminal. Uh, the one thing that I think hopefully you get from the book, when, if you read it, um, and that's missing from the show, is actually not a legal quibble. Uh, it's a quibble about what they seem to portray as a very overly serious office and an overly serious U.S. attorney. There's not a lot of mirth. There's not a lot of humor. There's a lot of being a scold. And <clears throat> I know people find this hard to believe often, but... The SDNY, the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York, is the funniest place I've ever been in my life. <laughs> People, you work really hard. You see terrible things that human beings do to other human beings. But the people there are so smart and so witty and so funny and they pull practical jokes all the time. And to my mind, that's the only way you can survive in an environment like that. You have to have some pressure valve, some, some release. And I wish that in future shows about U.S. Attorney's Offices, they show that little bit of a lighter side because it, it, it makes you human, and the people I worked with were intensely human. Okay. Well, one of the people you work with is the son of Andrew Bergman who wrote Blazing Saddles and The In-Laws. That's why we hired him. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So now, turning to real life. Um, 
I want to revisit some recent remarks of the Attorney General um, and summarize what I take him to have said about the, the, the behavior of the President in possibly trying to shut down this investigation. As far as I can tell, and you will correct me, is his argument went something like this, that the President was frustrated by all these investigations into actions that he knew involved no wrongdoing. And so he used his constitutional power to fire the FBI director and to prod his aides into maybe moving off Robert Mueller since there was no underlying crime there was, and there was no corrupt motive, what's the problem? Uh, as a legal matter, is he on strong ground here? He's not. <laughs> okay. Well, as they say in my cousin Vinny, there's a surprise. All right. <laughs> but explain that. I mean, explain. Yeah, look, so, so on the issue of the president's frustration, um, as I have said and other prosecutors, and maybe there are a few prosecutors here, uh, it's rare that people who are investigated are not frustrated. Um, I, I, have never, I have never received flowers or a box of chocolates <laughs> from anyone that our office investigated, along with the FBI, the DEA, Secret Service, you name the law enforcement partner. So that is not a basis to say, you know, nothing to see here, you know, move along. And then second, <clears throat> on the question of whether or not there was an underlying crime, you know, in, in fairness to the Attorney General, and in, in, in his summary that he keeps saying was not a summary, it was a summary. <laughs> um, he doesn't say that that's dispositive, that there's no underlying crime. What he does say is that has some bearing. So it's not quite as stark as I think the way you described it a minute ago, but it happens to be true, black letter law, as lawyers say, that there is no requirement that there be a charge of an underlying crime, whether it's uh, you know, bribery or uh, extortion or, or anything else, fraud, whatever you might name, for there to be a charge of obstruction. And I'm pretty confident that another former colleague, in the sense that he used to run the office, Rudy Giuliani, knows, because he prosecuted such cases, it happens all the time. It would be a very perverse thing to say, look, if you're being investigated, if you can obstruct successfully enough that the underlying crime, like fraud or extortion or bribery, whatever the case may be, can't be prosecuted, then we can't get you for obstruction either. That's not how the law works. That's not how common sense works. That's not how justice works. There was another thing he said in the Jan Crawford interview that I found really intriguing. And again, I think in this case I'm paraphrasing it right. He said, you know, it used to be liberals who were very concerned about the intrusion of intelligence agencies into the political process, the FBI, uh, whoever. And so the question would be, I think he, I'm expanding on what he said. So if in 08, the FBI said, hey, you know, Obama's been hanging around with this guy, Bill Ayers, who was in the Weather Underground. We ought to put somebody in that campaign to find out just how close that is, that there would have been a sense of outrage about that. And as I never say anymore, mutatis mutandis, only thing I remember from law school, uh, is there a reason why we should be concerned that the FBI and other organizations were looking into a political campaign? Look, I, I, think, <clears throat> I think you always want to be careful about how power is used. And we've had lots of episodes in our history, including in the 70s, when you had inordinate, overreaching surveillance by you know, an FBI director, among other people, who served for like a million years in the position. And a lot of reforms were adopted then in the 70s, and, and Title III 
the provision by which you get a wiretap in a criminal case. Uh, the protections were strengthened, and you had all this oversight, and you have layers of review, and that's all, that's all well and good. It also happens to be the case um, that just because someone is part of a political campaign is not therefore immunity from investigation and inquiry later if it turns out that there's enough smoke to worry about and believe that a political campaign conspired with a foreign power to try to affect an election. And you know, I, I tell stories like this all the time in the book. It's not so easy to decide you know, what the right thing to do is. My worry in this instance, um, when you talk about investigating, investigating the investigators, I'm, I'm for investigations. I generally have, that's been my job in my career, including of law enforcement officials when we thought they did something wrong, including NYPD officials, FBI officials, DA officials. We prosecuted them too when we thought they were doing wrong in the Southern District. The worry I have is, um, is it a good faith inquiry <clears throat> into conduct that reasonable people should be concerned cross the line, or is it given the rhetoric of the president and the conduct of the president and the, the, the reaction of the president against his adversaries and enemies, uh, is that the reason that something is being opened? Is it, so is it in good faith because there's reasonable belief that something incorrect was done? Or is it because you have a, a president who goes nuts when someone dares to challenge his power or to investigate him or his associates or anyone else around him? So when, when, when you have a president who decides, I don't like John Brennan, I'm going to revoke his security clearance, or I don't like this and I'm going to engage in that conduct, that tends to then taint the actions of the people who he has handpicked around him, one of whom is the attorney general. So, you know, at the end of the day, people can do whatever investigations they want, but you have to be concerned that we're turning into a country where people who are in political power decide, you know, I'm going to prosecute my adversaries, <clears throat> and I'm going to help, you know, help my, uh, my, and my allies. And you have other proof of that, too, on the other side of the ledger. You have, I think, abundant evidence that the President of the United States asked the former director uh, of the FBI, Jim Comey, to lay off Michael Flynn. So when you have that pattern of behavior, and then you have an attorney general who says all sorts of things that look like, as I've said before, you know, laundering the talking points, the provocative talking points of the president through the prestige and integrity of the Justice Department, like spying and collusion and other terms that have particular meaning or don't have particular meaning, then you worry when an attorney general decides to do that. And on, the, on top of that, you have an inspector general investigation with respect to some of that conduct. And you do have congressional testimony from people like Peter Strzok and Lisa Page. I'm not saying that everyone is pure as the driven snow. I'm not saying you shouldn't look at these things, but you have things going on. You've had testimony taken. And then you have a pattern of behavior of retaliation by the president. And in the context of all of that, I think it's reasonable to worry about this. You were particularly struck on the podcast I heard by the exchange when uh, Barr is asked, uh, was this treason? Yeah. And he says, legally, no. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, there's a lot unsaid in that, if you know what I mean. He knows how to speak, and then he knows how to speak. Um, I don't know if that made any sense. Uh, you know, we, we, we live a little bit in an age of, of subtext. Bill Barr is a very smart guy. I was one of the people when Matthew Whitaker, do you remember him? <laughs> uh, he wouldn't do well at the 92nd Street Y, I don't think. <laughs> Matthew Whitaker was the Attorney General, Acting Attorney General of the United States. 
And when Bill Barr was nominated, I was one of the people, uh, among others, and they include Chuck Rosen. Some of you may know these people, Chuck Rosenberg, Ben Wittes, and others, and Milgram was my co-host on the, on the, on the uh, Insider podcast, who were somewhat pleased uh, that you had a professional who had been the Attorney General before, um, who I know from his time when he was the General Counsel of Verizon, when I was a Senate staffer, and there were issues dealing with telecommunications law. I knew him to be a serious, honorable, honest, former public servant who had nothing to prove anymore, who had no political ambition, and as he said quite, convinc quite <clears throat> convincingly at his confirmation hearing, I'm not going anywhere after this. I'm going to do what I think is the right thing to do. And I, I was persuaded <coughs> that he was legit and on the up and up, and I have been... Um, I've been very disappointed in how, he, <clears throat> in how he uses language and how he's tried to you know, act a little bit more like the, the lawyer to the president than, than a lawyer for, uh, for all the folks. Yeah. Okay. Well, but he, you've... But I haven't really answered your question, but... Well, no, it perfectly sets up what I wanted to ask yeah. you. Look, I worked for Robert Kennedy the last year of his life. He died 51 years ago today. I think he was one of the most impressive public figures you can find. But the idea that he was independent of the nope. president is ludicrous. And you know what we did? We passed a law. I, I understand. We passed a law to, and look, Robert Kennedy's one of my heroes also. But it's insane okay, wait. that a president was permitted to put his brother in that office. That's not the only, that's not the only example. Yeah. You have Richard Nixon put his campaign manager as attorney general. He wound up as a guest of the federal government. Yeah, these are two bad examples already. Okay, wait, 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 no, no. <laughs> Eric Holder, the most recent Democratic Attorney General, at one point described himself, if I'm not mistaken, as the president's wingman. Yep, that was, that was bad, and he shouldn't have thought of himself that way, and he All shouldn't right. have said that, I agree. I understand, but my point about this is that the idea that a president picks an Attorney General <clears throat> who he does not have pretty strong belief is going to protect his various body parts, to me, is naive. And, why, and the idea that we think that because of, of a what I would regard as an understandable, massive revulsion in the legal, much of the legal community against this president, we somehow think that this time the attorney general is going to stand aside and not protect the person who nominated him. Yeah, give well, me, I, you know, I, Give me an example where you think that's happened. I was asked to stay on by the president of the United States. He asked me to stay on. He tried calling me when he was the president. I didn't return the call, and I got fired 22 hours later. You know, you make decisions in your life. You have a reputation to uphold, you have dedication to the rule of law and the Constitution as opposed to an individual. Um, you have people like Don McGahn. Don McGahn is not a hero. He's not, he's not known to have been a heroic human being in the law, especially when he was on the Federal Election Commission. Don McGahn had limits to what he would do and say and not do. Chris Wray is the current FBI director, handpicked by the president, as was Don McGahn, as was I. And they all came to a point where they wouldn't suborn nonsense. Chris Ray doesn't accept what Bill Barr says about spying. He says, you know, I, I reject that word. It has a particular meaning. Chris Ray doesn't say treason. Um, he wouldn't answer the question, uh, is it treason? No, not, not as a legal matter. And Don McGahn wouldn't make certain phone calls about special counsel Robert Mueller. So there, that's a number of examples of people uh, uh, you know, across a broad range, myself included, who maybe the president thought was going to... Jeff Sessions, one thing he did right Right? One thing we know he did right and was ethical and upright was he consulted the ethics officials in the, the Department of Justice and they said, you have to recuse yourself. And he did. And the one thing that Donald Trump hated about that guy, who he handpicked and expected to protect him, was that he recused himself. So there's lots of examples 
of people who are not even so great in my book. But when they're met with, uh, you know, a decision or, uh, or, or, or a, a question about adopting a particular line of rhetoric, they have said no. And I believe Bill Barr has gone too far in adopting the rhetoric and division and mindset of the President of the United States. I think the Sessions example in term is the, the best rebuttal because that was the same job. Um, what else he did as Attorney General, we'll talk about another time. Um, turning, turning to us an allied topic, did Miller blow it? That's a very loaded charge question. No, <laughs> he didn't blow it. First of all, I'm a journalist. So what would you expect? As Trump said, you knew I was a snake before you came. <laughs> but I don't think it's that loaded because the reason I ask it is that all these people that were, seem to be invested, yeah. the Robert De Niro portrayal of him on Saturday Night Live is, you know, I know everything. I, you know, you're one step away from the Huskow. Was it What I'm asking is, did he blow it? Or was this a case of people making assumptions based on their hopes rather than what Mueller well, found? Well, I think, I think there's a lot about the second. I think... There's something, there's, there's an argument you can make that Robert Mueller, and I've made it, that Robert Mueller, um, by omission, allowed people to get into the second mode. Look, I said from the outset, when people would, at gatherings like this and on the podcast and on CNN and other places where I talk to people, if there's evidence of a crime committed by the president, is Bob Mueller going to indict him? And that's when people excavated these old, you know, Office of Legal Counsel memoranda from 1973 and from 2000 that say you can't do that under that office's interpretation of the Constitution. And I and a lot of other people said, no, he's not going to do it. I was asked, would you, would you <coughs> prosecute the president if you were still the U.S. attorney and you had evidence of a crime? And I said, I would not, which surprised some people because I'm not a fan of the president of the United States. Ah, um, there's your headline. Uh, <laughs> and, and yet... Lots and lots of people said the contrary. You know, expert people on television said, well, it's just a guideline. It's just, um, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a principle within the department. It's not actually something that came up before the Supreme Court. There's no statute. And there's all sorts of reasons why you could. And that left an impression on the part of a lot of people who hoped that Bob Mueller would deliver them from this president, that at the end of the day, if there was evidence to show a crime, that he would charge him. Now, th that's the fault of a lot of people, I think, who were not paying attention no, to experts. Uh, but, but you can ask the question. You can ask the question. I, and I have asked the question. I would like Congress to ask the question if and when Robert Mueller ever faces a congressional panel, when is it that the special counsel's office determined that under no circumstances, whether or not there was evidence that was sufficient, under no circumstances, would they file an indictment against the president? Now, maybe that was day one. If that was day one, it's kind of interesting. Or maybe it was day 30. Maybe it was day 60 having you know, researched and, and endorsed the Office of Legal Counsel opinions. If that's so, you could make the... I mean, if, if I had been the, the, the special counsel, I might have done the same thing, but I would have had a conversation in my office, and maybe that makes me different. And I talk about what it means to speak as a prosecutor yeah. in the book and be careful about that. But I would have had a discussion in my office, and I don't know how it would have turned out because I don't have my brain trust anymore, to say, you know, a few months in, there's lots of people in the world who think that... Prosecuting the president is on the table. And a decision to prosecute is something that could be in the cards, and that is false. And for the next year and a half, that uh, presumption will remain in the minds of a lot of people. Is there something that we should do or say uh, that changes that presumption or changes that reliance? 
And I don't know that I would have done it or not, but, but I think, you know, to your question, I think there is an argument that maybe people should have known that was not going to be a possibility, and expectations, you know, are not nothing. Look, um, the other weird thing about the whole business of how the press treated stuff and the leaks that happened and what expectations are. Expectations are a funny thing, right? Imagine, and other people have suggested this thought experiment, imagine on the day that the Mueller report was released that it turns out that 85% of it was unknown to anyone until the dropping of the Mueller report, including volume one, volume one and volume two. You didn't know about these conversations with Don McGahn. The New York Times didn't have its scoops and the Wall Street Journal didn't have his scoops. There would have been, I think, a blood march to impeachment because holy cow, there's a lot of oxygen and there's a lot of energy towards all these things. This is what I think. Mm. The fact that so much of it, not all of it, but so much of it was already known and baked into the system, the House Judiciary Committee is having a hard time figuring out what kinds of hearings it's going to have because those kinds of investigations need oxygen. Now, on the other hand, and I think that's, whether you agree with it or not, I think that a little bit of that is at play, that, you know, People knew this already. It's baked into people's expectations. If there had been a new blockbuster, huge revelation, and there are a couple, maybe it would be different. Now, imagine me as a prosecutor, and this happened with some of those cases. Some information got out. People knew we were investigating Sheldon Silver and Dean Skelos um, on the eve of those indictments, for good or ill. And imagine we, got a, we sat around and we decided, well, you know, a lot of it's already out there in the press. Should we indict? Should we not indict? Of course which, you do. Okay, which, which once again, this is leading me right to the next area I want to talk about, or I want you to talk about, which, which is impeachment. Um, and it, it's connected. <laughs> it's connected. We know that's not Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> it's connected to a, 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 one of the, the points you make in doing justice, where you talk about when do you bring a case? You might, you might know to a moral certainty somebody did it, but you might not bring the case either because you're not sure you could convict and or because there's a, the fallout from bringing that case would be counterproductive. So in the, the, the analogy here that I'm groping for is yeah. the argument against bringing impeachment is, look, you, there's no way you're going to get a conviction. You know, it's one of the things that I've been trying to argue for three years. You look at Watergate and you look at Carl Bernstein and John Dean on CNN five times a night and you're not forgetting, you're not remembering it's a, it's a different Senate, it's a different Republican Party, and it's a different news media. So if you conclude there's no way you're going to get a conviction, is it reasonable for the Democrats in the House to say, this is a losing proposition for us, we will lose more than we gain, or got to get these facts out whether or not he's convicted or not? Yeah, so I don't know that that's actually their reasoning. I think there's a political calculation which is normal and legitimate <coughs> because they're political actors. They don't have the same considerations that prosecutors have, uh, and they don't have the same judgments that they need to make. But I think yeah, that the largely Democrats are concerned about proceeding with impeachment, not because at the end of the day the Republicans in the Senate majority, who have the majority in the Senate, won't convict, but because they think it'll politically backfire. Maybe one reason it will politically backfire is because there won't be a conviction, but the principle is not the lack of conviction. The principle is that it will backfire politically because everyone continues to have, a need, you know, everyone prepares for the last war. They have a knee-jerk, I think, concern based on what happened in 1998. And you can imagine a scenario in which uh, if you could predict for Democrats that uh, proceeding hastily and immediately and, 
you know, tomorrow with impeachment proceedings, and you call them impeachment proceedings, in my hypothetical, and you said that will immediately hurt the president politically. There will not be blowback on you. And at the end of the day, people won't care that there's no conviction in the Senate. Again, it's a hypothetical, because you will have proven your case, and they will understand that Mitch McConnell in the Senate is very political, but you won't suffer politically. I think they'll be rushing to impeach him. <coughs> so I don't know that how much they're doing it based on the, in, the, the inefficacy, the, the inefficacy of proceeding with impeachment. The way, the way I think about it, uh, and I understand the political calculation. If, I think the most important thing for the United States of America and also all the other countries <laughs> is that Donald Trump not be reelected. <clears throat> is this the 92nd Street Y? I mean, you know, you gotta no, but, stop confronting the audience with things like that. <laughs> But, 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 if, but, 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 but I, I, I get that. And if you think, if you think in good faith that proceeding with impeachment, even if you think there's impeachable conduct and if you had to vote your conscience, you would vote in favor of impeachment, if you think that that will cause Donald Trump to have a better chance of re-election, I get it. Yeah. However, that's speculative political, you know, prognostication. Okay. And I've found in life when you're pitting two things against each other. One is some speculation about an ultimate result that's based on tactics and um, ephemeral things. And on the other hand, you have a deep belief that there's a right thing to do. You choose the deep belief in what the right thing to do is. <clears throat> but let me offer you this, this despairing possibility. And it, it affects my business and your profession because journalism ain't a profession. We have this faith. Well, it's not. There's no barrier to entry, and you can't be de-journalized. <laughs> well, not yet. Well, Clarence Thomas hasn't gotten four more votes on the libel <laughs> thing yet. But here's my point. The, the, the faith of journalism, the best journalists, is get the truth out, and the people will respond. And I think in the public arena, you know, one, of, one of the things that, you, as a prosecutor, if you bring a case against a powerful political or other individual, it's like, you know, when, we, when the people learn the facts they will come round. I would suggest to you that, and I say this with no pleasure, that we're in a universe where that is a, that is a reason to doubt that, that you can bring the facts out painstakingly, the way the New York Times did with how Trump got rich, for instance, it has no impact because the people who believe in Trump, he has been brilliant about this in telling them whatever you hear about me yeah. that is wrong, <laughs> that is negative, is by definition false. And in that environment, an impeachment trial, I mean, I remember the, the House Judiciary, the, the Watergate Committee, the Judiciary Committee, you know, people's minds were changed. You could see that in the polls. I'm wondering whether or not that process would change a, a single mind. What you hope is, I agree with you, there's a, you know, I think people use the word cult. I don't know if that, that's an appropriate word to use or not. But there's some people who apparently their minds are not changeable no matter what. When Donald Trump said, and people joked about it at the time, it has a lot of force two years later, you know, that he said during the campaign, I could shoot a guy on Fifth Avenue and I wouldn't lose any support with some segment of the population. They would say, no, that's a deep fake. You guys know what deep fakes are? Um, he would have some way of saying that would convince some people, even if you had video evidence of that. I guarantee, literally, there'd be tens of millions of people in this country who'd be like, no, it wasn't him. He, he didn't do it. But what you hope is, depending on the seriousness of the facts and the misconduct that's set forth, in some forum that there are still reasonable people in the middle who can go either way. 
and they would be convinced by those facts. The other problem, and you made this point, you know, the media is very different. I'm learning a little bit about the media now, um, being in it a little bit. You know, the New York Times writes an article, they're the only, the only person, they're the only outlet who wrote the article. And so, you know, not everyone in America, I don't know if you know this, not everyone reads the New York Times. <laughs> and other outlets don't, co- don't fully cover what other outlets report if they can't confirm it. They don't have it out either. Um, the Mueller report itself, you know, in this way, I don't think Mueller blew it, but in this way, I think he's a little bit naive, but he also doesn't view his role as anything other than, right, than setting it all out. He doesn't view himself as a person who's supposed to sound the alarm bell and go out in the public and do a, and do a, you know, a tour on stage and say, let me tell you the principal findings of the Mueller report. Nobody read the Mueller report. You know, it's long. You know, I kind of do it for a living. Exactly. And it took a long time to... <clears throat> and people, people you know, don't necessarily, even if the facts are out, they don't necessarily swallow the facts unless they see it. The one thing the president understands better than anyone else is he understands television and video. Look, the guy let Don McGahn and other people cooperate with the special counsel's office. I'm not saying this, this is a theory. Cooperate with the special counsel's office. And maybe in part because he realized, yeah, they'll talk, there'll be a report. And he's fighting like hell to prevent them from testifying in front of cameras. And lawyers say, say about that, well, that doesn't make any sense at all. You've waived privilege with respect to the conversations with the special counsel. Then you've waived privilege again when you had an opportunity to assert it, when you let the special counsel's report be released. And now, same dude being asked to come testify about the same stuff that's in the report and that he gave testimony about, you don't want that. They don't want it because that will cause people to focus and, and understand the facts better. But this raises yet another question, and I, I actually want to turn to some stuff in your book, but this really strikes me as uh, a red line that is a bright red. You now have the president's backers saying, yeah, sure, uh, including people in Congress. You know, there was a time when institutionally, if you were in the legislative branch, regardless of party, you didn't like it when the executive branch started playing games, whether it was emergency declarations of money or, or contempt. And once again, it raises the question, uh, I think Tubin wrote about this in the New Yorker a while ago, a short while ago, what happens if the people in power just say to a lawful demand of a court, turn this over to the Congress, the law is absolutely clear, and they say, no. Yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> yeah, and, you're, and, and that, you're seeing some of that. And, you know, other people have said this long before I, including, I believe, the people who wrote the Federalist Papers. Um, you know, the origin of this comment is in those papers. You know, they a little bit anticipated an overreaching president. They didn't anticipate a supine Congress. And that's what you have. And why do you have that a little bit? You have it because this president, who, you know, people underestimate in a lot of ways and also overestimate, He's scorched earth against any individual. He has the largest megaphone on earth that makes a difference. As I, as I say in the book, you know what? It is standard fare for prosecutors to be attacked and accused and, and told witch hunt <coughs> and hoax. I got that a lot. I got a lot of criticism in a lot of places, um, including people thinking that I was, I was I, when they couldn't come up with some other explanation for why 
Um, I might be biased. They said I was biased against Indian Americans because I'm Indian and that makes no sense at all. But people. I was going to ask if you got that because of the number of the people you put away were indeed. Yeah, like I'm some kind of self-hating, like now bring me Indians. Like, I, you know, <laughs> there's plenty of people before I had to get in. Maybe you're so successful. Now you're going to go, you know, now you've got to get the Indian people because you've, we don't, that's not how we do it. That's not how we do it. And I said, you know, that's standard operating procedure. You know, you think Sheldon Silver was not happy. Um, Dean Skelos was unhappy, and they had they had microphones. There were significant people, um, some of the hedge fund guys. Also, the president is different. Yeah, he has, and if he chooses to use it, like this president has, he chooses, and he has, you know, different platforms like Twitter. He chooses to say about a sitting member of the House, who knows this, who dares to say anything, he goes on full frontal attack. He doesn't. It doesn't care if you're the Pope. If you're John Roberts, if you're Bob Mueller, if you've given your life to this country, he doesn't care. And you know what? They're members of Congress who are weak. And then they see what, what happened to Jeff Flake. Ever, ever hear from him lately? So, you mm-hmm. know, they, they are human and in some ways somewhat weak humans. And so they don't stand up, even though you and I both know from either direct conversation or knowing politicians who say they've had direct conversations, that there are lots and lots of Republicans who are mortified by what's happening, who are mortified at how the president is asserting his power, but are cowed by what will happen to them if one of them breaks off. Right. As, as, and that's not an unrational, irrational fear, is it? No. Um, I keep wanting to get back to this, but, but you raised, it's kind of sequential. What, if we are in a position now where the executive branch or the president is going to some flat out say, I don't care what, the legislative branch's power is in, in Article One. I don't care about that. I'm not going to do it. Then you have a president who, by the time his first term, maybe his only term is over, will have populated the federal bench with more allies than ever in history. And I'm talking about allies not just because they're Republicans, but who have been carefully, precisely vetted by the Federalist Society and the other it's a judicial action. In other words, could we be seeing a situation where if these kinds of fights reach a court, unlike Nixon's case where eight to nothing said, you turn over those tapes, including I think three justices he appointed, and he did, we now may be taking a look at a case where A, the court says turn over whatever, and the president says no, or the court says no, unitary executive, you got the power. How worried are you about the shape of the federal bench? Yeah, I'm worried about it. Um, I'm not. I'm not, um, you know, at, 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 um, at wit's end, because I do think that some of these judges, uh, like, again, I don't keep using the example of Don McGahn and Jeff Sessions and others, but these were political allies of the president who, when confronted with a question about doing the right thing or the wrong thing, you know, decided I'm going to pack up my bags and I'm going to leave the job. And I, and I would like to think that in the, at the district court level and the circuit court level, there are people who may be allies of the president or are very conservative and have been selected in a particular way, but they still have some, if they're real lawyers, and some of them aren't, but most of them are, are actually real lawyers, and maybe they will toe the line um, in a way that many people here would not like on uh, reproductive rights or on criminal justice, or you name the issue. I still have some, some slight optimism that on a, on a clear issue of rule of law, that judges like that, once they have life tenure, even though they've been appointed by a particular mm-hmm. person, like you mentioned three Supreme Court justices in the Nixon era, 
they will still do the right thing in the same way that Jeff Sessions recused himself and Dom again offered his resignation. I'm glad I would like to hope. Okay. You know, all I can say is I read Brett Kavanaugh's 19, uh, 2017 tribute to Rehnquist. And if you can read that lecture and not have a pretty good guess about where he's going on that whole series of cases starting with Griswold, maybe you're right. Maybe, maybe that was just theoretical. But it sure... Look, but, but, they don't, but look, yes, he's appointing a lot of judges, but you have judges that were um, not appointed by him, and you have a D.C. district court judge who recently, on an expedited basis, said this argument that the president's lawyers are making, that, that Congress has no business investigating the president, which would necessarily mean that they didn't think Watergate was appropriate, they didn't think um, Whitewater investigation was appropriate. It's an extreme position. And he disposed of it and dismissed it, you know, with a little bit of, of humor, comparing yeah. the president to James Buchanan, uh, you know, back in the 1800s. You know, he writes a powerful opinion. It'll go up and we'll see what happens. Right. But, but I do, again, maybe this is naive, but, I, you know, I, got, I, got, I need something. I'll get to get through my days. I, I understand. And that is that individual judges have a personal reputation. They have to live in the world because Trump is going to go at some point. And forward-thinking people are going to, what did I do when presented with this clear issue? Did I sell my soul? Did I sell my law degree? Did I sell my conscience? Or did I do the right thing? Because this too will pass one day. And I, I still hope, because this is how I live, that there will be good people who will do the right thing. Um, okay. <clears throat> Turn the page. There's a lot of murmuring. <laughs> Let me turn the page. By the way, I have pointed to every presidential candidate that I've ever interviewed. I have noted them. You do not actually have to be a member of the bar to be appointed to the Supreme Court. I have not been, that has not worked for me yet. And, <laughs> but, you know, and I'm a little old for it, but anyway. So I want to turn to something in, in your book, because the, the book, it, for me, it's a fascinating um, journey into how a, a, in your, you know, a prosecutor particularly thinks. Um, how do you trust flipping witnesses? You know, how do, how do you bring them before a jury? There's a fascinating chapter on that. But one of the things you talk about, as I mentioned, is when you don't bring cases. And in your reign, we had this, you, you came in just as the financial meltdown was kind of playing out, 2009, right? And for a lot of us, one of the abiding questions is, okay, you got insider traders, all them South Asians. No, just some of them. Come on. You got, you got Stephen Cohn's... It's a bunch of white people. Too. You got a lot of money out of Stephen Cohn's company. But none of the perpetrators of the worst financial calamity since the Depression ever spent a day in the Huskow. Yeah. Why not? Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a good question that a lot of people ask. And I get that you might be, not be surprised to learn that I, I've never, I never don't get that question. Um, as I say in the book... The, the one thing that I want people to understand before they start saying, well, why didn't this happen or that happen, is that every incentive on the part of people who were uh, also victims of the financial crisis, because everyone's a human being, which includes prosecutors, not just in my office, but in 93 offices around the country, at the SEC, at the FBI, and all sorts of regulatory agencies, not only had a, uh, a professional obligation to the extent that they could to pursue accountability, but also a personal incentive, because they had 401k plans too. So to the extent people think, well, there was a failure of will uh, or incentive, that's not it. At the same time, you have to realize that sometimes it's the case that you don't have evidence, 
because you don't have a cooperating witness or you don't have a wiretap. And sometimes it's the case that people engage in really crappy conduct that you would call lowercase corrupt uh, and greedy and obnoxious and negligent even, possibly reckless. But at the end of the day, there are legal defenses and they didn't break a criminal law. So by the way, you know, I take responsibility for what my office did or did not do, but there were many, many offices and there were many, many people, including hundreds and hundreds of people at Maine Justice and at other U.S. Attorney's offices and at the SEC and at Attorney General's offices and also at the regulatory agencies, which by the way, had a lower criminal, had a lower standard of proof to, you know, criminal case, you gotta prove proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Civil case, just a preponderance of the evidence and not even any regulatory, you know, adding to the frustration, not even any regulatory agency brought a civil case against someone who was you know, at the head of a financial institution in connection with the financial crisis. So the frustration is felt not just by members of the public but also people who were in these jobs. The financial crisis wasn't brought on by one monolithic thing and there was not just one kind of potential crime that was investigated, but really good people worked really, really hard in my office and in dozens of other offices around the country and I'm not aware of a viable criminal case that people, career people recommended being brought because there's a lot of bad conduct but there was not proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And if you don't have that, you can't bring a case. And by the way, you, know, I, I, you should read the chapter because I don't have time to go into all of it here and it, it might not be satisfactory and it often it's not satisfactory to people. People's hearts and minds were in the right place and people were very expert and people spent a lot of time on these things. But to prove a criminal case against someone here, you have to actually show not just that that person presided when bad stuff happened, whether it's securitization of, of, of uh, mortgages or, or anything else. You have to prove that they had knowledge. You know, people to this day are still upset. Well, why isn't Donald Trump behind bars? Because his foundation, you know, maybe there's no proof. You know, mob families, uh, until people figured out how to really get cooperating witnesses and how to get the best wiretap evidence, you have plausible deniability if you're here. In addition to that, and a thing that I don't think is great, but hurts a criminal prosecution, in lots of these transactions, you had people at these companies who basically had third-party uh, accountants, auditors, and also third-party lawyers. When they said, is this disclosure about this junk that we're selling, is this disclosure legally sufficient? And you had lawyers and accountants saying, yes, it was. And that might be not right, and maybe they're trying to get their fee, but it is not in our system possible, given the standard of proof you have to show, to put this person in prison when that person says, in good faith, and you can't prove it's a lie, we relied on the advice of counsel. We relied on the advice of accountants. And that may stink and be terrible, and you could change the standard, but that's what I think a lot of people were facing. Is there not a standard, this shows you why I'm not a lawyer, and in some cases, known or should have known or no reasonable person could fail. I'm thinking of a case of the of Bazillo, the head of Countrywide Mortgage, that was giving out countless numbers of you know, liar loans, mortgages they absolutely knew or had to have known they couldn't be paid back. Then they could turn them into those wonderful CDOs. Yeah. And so there's no way to say, look, this is the CEO and founder of the company. His company is spending, is giving out you know, blizzards of these yeah. clearly dishonest papers. And there's no way to say, there's no way to impute to him that he had to have known? There's a doctrine of willful blindness that's used in some, uh, in some cases, which is very high standard still to be able to use. That's not one of the cases that the Southern District looked at. There are dozens and dozens of cases that was done by people on the West Coast. 
So I can't speak to that. I don't know if they should have brought a case or not brought a case. I agree. It looks like a big, huge amount of smoke and, yeah. and red flags. Um, but the standard for showing willful blindness is very, very high, whether it's a drug case or, or a financial fraud case. Okay. There's an, by the way, to show you what the vagaries of age, I've just spent the last 30 seconds looking for my glasses. <laughs> this is why I don't belong on the Supreme Court. Um, <laughs> A lot of the, your best-known cases involve public corruption. And one of the things you had, and, and other prosecutors had to deal with, was a series of Supreme Court cases uh, about just how much you had to prove, which struck me, strikes me as naivete on steroids. God bless you. You know, that this is, Get what you on the court. this is what happens when you only appoint people to the court who've been on the federal bench all their lives and never spent a minute like in a state legislature. Do like Sandra Day O'Connor. I think, I think O'Connor would have understood these cases better. Well, because she was in the yeah, Arizona state legislature. So is there a problem here that, when you're, that, that, we've got a leak, that we've got legal doctrines now that make it much harder to put corrupt public officials in jail? Yeah, it's not great. <laughs> I think... Um, Look, in these, without spending too much time in doing political corruption and quid pro quo 101, we charged and convicted with overabundant evidence, Sheldon Silver and Dean Skelos on public corruption charges, and also Dean Skelos' son, Adam. And then after that, and it was a beautifully tried case by my teams um, in both cases, the Supreme Court decided in the McDonald case, the former governor of Virginia, that certain things didn't qualify as official. So we you have know, a quid pro quo case, there has to be official action in return for something of value, essentially. And among the things that could no longer count as official action, and I'm, you know, I'm simplifying this, was a politician, in exchange for something of value, merely setting up meetings, arranging meetings. Uh, maybe voting is an official action. Maybe uh, you know, attributing money to a particular cause or a constituent is official action, but just arranging meetings is not. And you know, I, I was not an expert on the McDonald case, but from what I understand of it, I think that based on the way the law was already being interpreted and the way the statute was written, that a reasonable American jurors know the difference between innocent meeting arranging and corruption, which, was, which is rotten. And I think they did know, and I do think that there's some naivete on the part of, of the Supreme Court justices. So, yeah, in cases where politicians are a little bit smart and clever and want to help a donor... Um, and they, you know, and you have a governor of a state, hypothetically, calling down to some low-level person <coughs> and, and saying... I'm sorry. And saying, hey, Hypothetically, it just got to me. And saying... It's all hypothetical. And saying, hey, um, governor here, just, you know, on this matter that's before you, could, just, could you just make sure that you give it some attention and take the meeting with this guy who gave me $20,000 in a donation? The Supreme Court says, basically that that's not sufficient. And people in the real world know how a low-level government employee takes that call. So in cases like that where politicians are kind of smart uh, and, and sort of hit around the edges, yeah, you won't be able to put those corrupt people in prison any longer. But in cases that are very substantial and you have lots of other official action, like we did in Silver and Skelos, you can still bring the case. We got actually, a, a, you draw a very high-class audience. We've got a lot of very good questions okay. here. Okay. So I'm going to ask you one more and then turn to the questions. Um, you may or may not be aware that the U.S. Attorney's Office here and in other uh, regions have been, has been the launching pad for political careers. Um, 
Rudy Giuliani. Uh, Morgenthau ran for governor, not successfully. Uh, I believe Governor Spitzer was once the sheriff of Wall Street. Um, Tom Dewey wasn't U.S. attorney, but he, long, he went from, I think, DA to the nominee of, twice nominee. He of defeated Truman. He did for six hours. According to the press. Uh, well, six hours. So the, the question is, um, have you been listening to the siren song of people saying, come on, jump in the water. We want you to run for something. All right, I'm in. No. Um, as I've said, I, I have no intention of, uh, of joining politics in the same way I have no intention of joining the circus. And, and, I, and I don't mean no offense to circus people. You know, could I just point something out to you? The phrase, I have no intention, oh, you know, has been used, I believe <laughs> Christian Gillibrand was the last person to drop that particular word. It is, um, I'm, I'm not putting this on you, but I, my experience as a political journalist is that is often a word that has a half-life of cotton candy. <laughs> the way a politician says he or she is not running for office is to take a Sherman after General Sherman, who said, if nominated, I will not run. If elected, I will not serve. And whenever a candidate says that, or a politician says that, you know, okay, that's the gold standard. Okay, I'm saying that then. Look, look, you know, because I want to be honest, right? Uh, be a good, why not? Poli politics is not my cup of tea. You know, it's not for, look, there's lots of great stuff that people can do. You know, no one says to me, how bizarre, don't you want to become a judge? And I say in the book, I don't want to become a judge. That's another very noble area of public service, and we need good judges. And I think I would be a decent judge. I don't want to be a judge, in part, because I think it's very cloistering. And also, um, and this might sound odd to folks who haven't read the book, coming from a former prosecutor, um, I don't know how to impose a just sentence on a human being. I don't know if the right sentence, it, it, you know, sitting there up on the bench with a robe on is 70 months or 45 months or 51 months. I think you know, we need to determine that and people need to balance the factors in deciding how much liberty to take away from a human being who's been convicted of a crime and the law says should suffer some consequence including incarceration. But you know, I don't wanna be that guy. Uh, in the same way that some people, you know, they believe in the police force but they don't wanna be the police officer. Or some people you know, believe that there should be uh, you know, folks who engage in, in you, know, you name a profession, the idea of uh, you know, calling up people every day for hours a day and asking them for money does not, does not make me happy. It's not, it's not a thrilling thing. The idea of subjecting yourself to a lot of nonsense, I mean, sometimes, some days I don't even like, and I'm not even a public official, some days I don't even like what nonsense toxicity there is on Twitter. Mm -mm. And, uh, but at the same time, you know, I recognize that life is long and you never know. And I did, I did for a week, as, as my podcast listeners will remember, maybe there was an opening... Uh, because Eric Schneiderman had to step down for good reasons. And I did. I thought about it for a week or 10 days about running for state attorney general. It didn't seem right for me at the time and all these other reasons I'm describing to you. If I ever were going to do it, I would have to figure out a way to do it in, in a climate where uh, you could be true to yourself, where there's less nonsense, and where your entire being is not every day sucked away by trying to raise money from people who you know and people you don't know. Okay. So... So you're not, in the, you're not gonna necessarily run for New York County District Attorney and you're not gonna run for governor or senator at any time soon. 
That's certainly so. Okay. Um, Michael Flynn fired his lawyers this week. Is this just a delay tactic, or is he going to withdraw his plea or hope for a pardon? So I don't know. You know, it's, it's a, that, that's the longest sentence in coming that we've seen in any, with respect to any figure in the Mueller investigation. Remember, he was on the verge of being sentenced, and then, you know, his lawyers seemed to think he was going to do well at the sentencing. The judge said some things that made the lawyers freak out a little bit, and they said, why don't we adjourn, and they did. Uh, so maybe it's a delay tactic. Um, it, my, my guess is that he wants to find lawyers who will help him withdraw his guilty plea. People who don't practice in this area may not appreciate. It's not so easy. It's not just, oh, I pled guilty and I, and I made all these statements under oath, and now, because I have a different view and I had a different you know, um, cup of tea, I want to change my plea. It, you are not often allowed to withdraw your guilty plea. The guilty plea is a guilty plea. So we'll see what happens. Um, but you know, that's my guess, but it's just conjecture. Are the U are the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District and the New York State Attorney General coordinating to investigate Trump organizations? It's a question. Yay, coordination. We, um, <laughs> we're rooting, I'm in okay. favor. <laughs> you know, I hope so. You know, with the, uh, so I was U.S. Attorney for seven and a half years, and, you know, we were pretty, you know, full of ourselves, and in a good way, meaning when we had evidence and we were pursuing... Uh, <coughs> criminal charges, we thought we knew best. And we didn't, we weren't in the habit of saying like, hey, other offices, hey, Manhattan DA, hey, New York Attorney General, come join us. Instead, sometimes, sometimes these, and I'm being very honest with my, my friends here because we've been together for over an hour now, you find out that other offices, they have their own investigations that they do and they run up against yours. You, know, you see that in the movies sometimes. Well, sometimes it happens with prosecutors' offices too. And you find out that the state attorney, attorney general may be like looking at you know, Michael Cohen for various things. The SDNY is looking at him for certain things. And once you know that some other office is engaging in an investigation, uh, you want to make sure that you don't get crosswise with each other. You want to deconflict in proper ways. You want to make sure that maybe you divide up the targets. Or you make sure that nobody does something that's going to screw your investigation. And we did, you know, in, with respect to Albany um, corruption, we were coordinating with the New York Attorney General's office, in, including cases that we brought with respect to all this contracting, and Joe Prococo, who was you know, the, one of the top aides to, to Governor Cuomo, the Attorney General's office had some involvement in those kinds of things. And so we coordinated in a way to make sure that the public is being served properly, so I would imagine they are. We've witnessed uh, numerous incidents of police brutality or bearing false witness or manufacturing incriminating evidence. Why are so few of these perpetrators prosecuted? Yeah, you know, more should be, probably. You have, again, as with the financial crisis, you know, law is written in a particular way that allows um, a lot of deference in the moment of action by a police officer. We investigate a number of those cases, uh, and other officers investigate those cases too. And on that score, I think maybe the law you know, needs to be reviewed with respect to how much deference you give to a police officer in, in those particular moments when you can't disprove that an officer in good faith, even if it seems ludicrous to you and to an objective person, if, it's, if you can't disprove that an officer in good faith thought that he saw a weapon or thought in that moment when split-second decisions that he had to take a certain action, um, you may have sufficient evidence to have a disciplinary action or win a civil suit, uh, and in certain circumstances enough to win a criminal conviction, but it's really hard because the law you know, gives so much deference to police officers. I don't think, at least with my office, 
it's not because, as some people suggest, and maybe this is true other places, it's not because, well, you know, in a lot of instances, there are partners in law enforcement, so we give them a buy. Um, as I said before, you know, and when I would talk to families on those couple of occasions where we had such cases, and families would come in and say, well, where's justice for my son? I said, the important thing you need to know, and we'll explain the issues with this particular case, is that we're not afraid of prosecuting cops. I prosecuted 19 cops in other matters, whether it was bribery or gun running or something else. So, so we don't care if someone's a cop or an FBI agent. We'll prosecute them. The facts of this particular case and the amount of deference accorded to the law enforcement agencies under the current state of the law is such that it was really hard. I'm going to give a one-word answer to this and then turn it over to you. Should the attorney general be selected in a different way than, than we do now, like being directly elected? No. I agree, no. Okay. I mean, we, you know, we do it here. Um, we directly elect the attorney general in a lot, most states, I guess. I don't know if all of them. Uh, so, you know, it's funny. I got, a, I got, a, I got a, a question about this on a podcast that just released today where someone was asking about the election of judges. And it's a similar sort of question, right? They're, they're, and, and DAs, so you have, you know, who were you know, subset of, of you know, report to an AG in some, in some measure. In <coughs> Jersey, the state I grew up, the, uh, the governor appoints the attorney general and appoints all the DAs. <coughs> maybe that's better, maybe that's worse. Um, I, I tend to think with respect to judges that those jobs are special in a way, and if you start subjecting uh, judges to have to campaign and We've seen, money, we've and run ads and have negative ads um, and, 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 and worry that they're beholden to particular interests like tobacco or otherwise because they finance the campaigns. I think it's terrible if, for a member of Congress or a state senator. I think it's even more terrible for a judge. Yeah. Um, so um, it's bad. So there are two, there are two questions that, that are inevitable. You're, you're in, you can answer them as quickly as you would like. <laughs> um, who do you like for 2020? I like them all. Uh, you know, there's a lot. I mean, who, isn't everyone running? It's, you, know. <laughs> you know what? There's 23 people running. I quote this all the time here, but I'm going to quote it again. It's a line that uh, Kevin Nealon offered on Weekend Update. In a recent poll, 85% of Americans said if the election were held today, they would really be surprised. <laughs> I mean, folks... It's eight months until that phony baloney Iowa caucus happens. And when you read that somebody's surging from 3 to 4% in a 23% <laughs> race, the answer is turn the damn television off. There are all these good books to read. Just don't do this to yourself. That's my answer. Yeah. Look, I do think, if you go back to this first premise, and I understand the way I describe the premise, maybe leads you to a different conclusion about who you should support and whether you should support someone who 100% accords with your views and beliefs and if you believe in radical change, they support radical change. But I go back to my first premise, for the country and for all the countries, that Donald Trump needs to be defeated. And that should enter into, I'm not saying it's dispositive, it shouldn't you know, rule your decision, but it should be really high up there. Who is gonna be in a position, because I mean, we'll come back here to the 90 seconds why, maybe in, in, in January or, or, or December of uh, January 2021 or, or, or December of 2020. And man, if a lot of people supported a Democratic candidate because they thought they were pure in a particular way and Donald Trump got reelected, I'm going to be really mad. <laughs> this, is, this is even beyond speculative. How likely is it that Trump stays another four years? 
It's, it's five and a half, actually, guys. Yeah, I, um, deponent knoweth not. And nobody else does either. Could I just remind you, I'm, I'm finishing a piece of Politico about this. In the spring of 1991, when G.H.W. Bush was at 90% after the uh, Kuwait success, Saturday Night Live did a, a sketch in which the Democratic candidates were, the, the, it was, uh, who gets to lose to Bush? And the premise was that all these candidates were furiously explaining why they were not the right nominee. I, I drink too much. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a criminal. So I, I just, it's the same answer. We, we, we just don't know. This, oh, but, but can I say? Yes, if you can say whatever to my, you like. To my friends here, um, <coughs> it is very important to say to yourself and say to your friends, there's an absolutely decent, good, some people think probable chance I say decent chance, I don't say probable, but that Donald Trump will be reelected. Mm -hmm. And the reason you need to tell everyone that is so they get off their butts and they do what's necessary to do. <clears throat> and I would, this is fine. I just also remind you of a very old line that is beginning to seem a slightly more relevant is when Democrats form a firing squad, they make a circle. <laughs> um, and that's the big danger. Yay for firing squads. I mean, look, I grew up on the, on the Upper West Side of Manhattan where the politics were. He voted wrong in 1963 on that bill in the legislature to do something. I'll never vote for that son of a bitch. Okay. If that's your politics, yeah. as they say in your culture, a beggism. You know, it's all right. <laughs> I like this question because it's, 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 it's actually it's pretty decent philosophical inquiry. Does justice have a specific legal definition or is it just the application of the law equally to everyone? Is it absolute or relative? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I, I can't answer it. You know, in, in, the, in the intro to the book, I say, um, you know, I don't attempt a definition of justice because it's almost impossible to define. It depends on, a lot on whether you think about procedural justice or what outcomes should be and process. But what I do say is, what I think we should focus on, is that people will view an outcome a decision or conclusion of some matter as fair and just if they think the process was fair and if they think that the people who are involved in the process are fair-minded. And that's almost the best you can hope for. And the last thing I'll say, and I'm borrowing from uh, a very great civil rights lawyer, death penalty lawyer in the country, Brian Stevenson, who's been on the podcast, who points out there's a difference between justice generally and legal justice. And the example he uses, and I borrow this all the time, is it may be the case that someone who's applying for relief because they've been discriminated against or treated badly or is about to be executed, that you missed the deadline to file by a day. And maybe it's legally just for you not to be able to pursue the argument because you're late by a day, but that's not what people would think of as justice. Those are two different things, but the law aspires to be just uh, in all the ways that people will understand. I had, I had Judge Rakoff, who's a famous district court judge in the Southern District, talking about sentencing once on the podcast. And, and he introduced this concept that you don't, it's not in a law book, and it's not in the sentencing guidelines. He said, you know, people, the people believe in cosmic justice. At the end of the day, there has to be some visceral <coughs> satisfaction that the law doesn't always provide that the way things unfolded and the way the facts unspooled and the way the decisions were made sort of sits well in the world and with you. The law doesn't always do that, but that's what we aspire to do. Uh, I, I must say, if I can follow that, 
I increasingly think that the phrase on the Supreme Court, equal justice under law, is at best aspirational. And I mean at best. I mean, every time one of these prospective Supreme Court justices comes before these phony, those confirmation hearings, which Elena Kagan called a, a shallow, what was it, a, a shallow charade. She did that when she was an academic. Yeah. <laughs> um, a vacuous charade. And they say, as any person, do you agree that no one is above the law? Now, someday we're going to have, <laughs> I don't know what. A justice says, well, I can show you. Uh, you want some examples of people who are above the law? I'll give them to you. Yeah, but you know, yeah. the color to that is, you know, I think the, the point you seem to be making is, well, everyone can just sort of say their, their sort of silly answer and everyone agrees. You would think that there would be another question that everyone could answer easily uh, that people seem to have trouble answering now, and, as, and, and it's this. Do you think Brown v. Board of Education was correctly decided? And a lot of your judges in this country who are being nominated by this president refuse to answer that question. Right, and you know, we, I don't think it's a mystery why. You know, they're setting the groundwork for a return to a time, you know, pre-FDR court, um, and in which, in which, taking into account, um, you know, the social sciences, or whatever. You know, you don't do that. I mean, it's it, that's a bizarre one. I, I will agree. I, I guess I'd like to, for me, and look, this is. This is because I used to write for the National Lampoon in its glory days, and I still have that. You know, I'd love someone to say, do you think Jeffrey Epstein wasn't above the law? Who are you kidding? Guy raped dozens of underage girls, and his fancy schmancy lawyers managed to create a situation with the prosecutor where the victims weren't even told of the sentencing. And he got, what, 11 months in, in, a, in a country club, and he doesn't even have to register as a sex offender. He's not above the law? Of course he's above the law. Well, maybe, and that's, a, that's by all I can all say that because I'm not a lawyer. Well, but, and, and, there, and there maybe was a miscarriage of justice there. There's a difference between, um, and there are lots and lots of examples of people getting away with crimes, and I guess in a, in a manner of speaking, you can say they're above the law, but you, know, you can imagine situations in which people did their jobs better, and the witnesses were better, and the judge was better, and they wouldn't be above the law, but it's not structural necessarily, although you might say it is because people have a lot of money. There are a lot of, look, I prosecuted some billionaires with a lot of money, and we showed they were not above the law, and they went to prison. Um, but there are some people who are a little bit above the law. We, well, they like to say about the President of the United States. Yeah. He's a, he, he is. There's an Office of Legal Counsel opinion that says he can't be prosecuted. That's a form of being above the law. Now, maybe that's right, maybe that's wrong, but that's a thing that should trouble us and we should think about going forward. What's the one thing people aren't worried about that hasn't been discussed and they should be, and... What's the thing that people are talking a lot about that it really isn't that big a deal? <laughs> I, like, I, mean, I like the second part of that question even more. I like that, but the first part is like, haven't we depressed everyone enough? <laughs> By the way, there's all this horrible stuff, and there's, here's the one horrible, you know, I don't, I don't know. Um, what was the second part of the question? Uh, what, what are we talking about too What's much? What's the one thing that people are, are obsessing about yeah, that maybe so, isn't such know, a big deal? A lot of the nonsense that comes out of the president's mouth now, I understand, and I get it, when people say you shouldn't normalize this and you shouldn't normalize that. <coughs> but there's, you know, part of the reason the president gets away with what he d gets away with is that I can't remember on Wednesday when he does a crazy thing that's upsetting and undermines democracy or free press or whatever, you name it. I can't remember the thing that made me feel the same way on Monday <laughs> because I'm thinking about the thing on Wednesday. And in between, 
There's some stuff that he says that's gross and disgusting that actually doesn't affect democracy. It's just gross and disgusting. I'll give you an example. Um, and I got, a lot of, I got a lot of trouble on my Twitter feed. I remember like a year and a half ago, the president said, uh, reportedly said something like, the White House is a dump. Remember, oh God, what, how terrible. And I think I wrote, given, in the middle of all sorts of things, whether it was Khashoggi or um, you know, hate crime, like, this crazy stuff that he's doing, and he said the White House is a dump. And I simply said, look, this is not in the top 40 most important things to be outraged about, <laughs> which I stand by. And in my Twitter feed, my, my very great friends who follow me on social media were like, do not tell us what to be outraged by. Um, I can multitask in my outrage. <laughs> I, all right. But I, but I, I'm, I look, I have, I, have, I have a pretty, you know, I have a, I have a lot of bandwidth. And I can multitask like the best of them. But every once in a while, yeah. you just, you got to focus on the... And I got one for important. you. Speaking yeah. of, by the way, this is hashtag I have no life is the, <laughs> with the person. Are there, <laughs> I had to do this. Are there any circumstances under which a person should retweet himself? <laughs> and what are they? <laughs> you, you were way too much on Twitter, my friend. So I, so, yeah, so, on, so I said last night on Twitter, I don't love Twitter lately. I've been a little less on Twitter. Because um, there's a lot of nonsense on Twitter, and and so I said, yeah, you know, people don't retweet yourself. Um, it's sad, and we see you. <laughs> and then people said, well, no, there's times so retweet yourself, and so so there are exceptions. I tweeted this afternoon in response to a tweet by um, Kevin Cruz. You know him; he's a historian who's been on the podcast, who's great and wonderful on Twitter, and you should follow him. And he debunks a lot of. Uh, Fools on Twitter with real histories, historian at Princeton. And he said, well, I feel very seen now because apparently he retweets himself. And so, well, there are exceptions for good causes if you're trying to raise money for a good cause. Uh, or if you're trying to you know, uh, tell people in case you missed this story, you can take a look and you can retweet that way. Or for really smart rock star historians. So, in those circumstances, it's okay. And by the way, don't take anything that I say on Twitter about Twitter etiquette too seriously. Uh, Preet, love you and what you do. What would you tell a young progressive person working in a prosecutor's office who is concerned by the attitude of some of the old school, tough on crime attorneys and investigators? How does one respond to the argument that young progressives are just being naive? Well, you know, I don't know the circumstances. I mean, I think you should stand up for, for what you believe in and you should make decisions based on what the law is and what your conscience is and you should try to find you know, sympathetic voices uh, in the echelons above you. And I guarantee you that if you're, if you're right, and again, like, I don't know what prosecutor's office someone is in, but I, I, I like to believe that in my office, uh, in the Southern District, if someone had that view and someone had that concern, they would raise it uh, to someone else or raise it with a colleague who's a peer, and maybe both together say, well, we think this is not the right way to go about it, or this is too harsh, or this is too onerous, or this is unnecessary, or this is a miscarriage of justice. Uh, and, and proceed that way. Now, it also happens to be true that some, some people are naive. And it also may be true, um, on the one hand, that bad things are happening and you, you, know, you need to blow the whistle on that. It also may be true that maybe that line of work is not for you. There's some tough things you gotta do uh, as a prosecutor. Uh, but you know, my initial inclination is if you believe it strongly and it's in your heart and you got through the process of getting into that office and you have you know, the... Um, you know, the tools and the background and the credentials to have been accepted in that office, you're, you're onto something and you should raise it. This is a question for me. It actually comes from a, a longtime friend, 
referencing the fact that I'd worked for Robert Kennedy. He was in Los Angeles when he was shot. And the question is, do you see any hope for our country now with 23 Democrats running and dividing the party? Uh, and, and let me be serious about this. Is you, you don't know at this point whether any or more than one of them is going to turn out to be an extraordinary political figure. Just don't know. Um, when, when Franklin Roosevelt's career began, he was considered such a lightweight, you know, rich boy from uh, Dutchess County, that his relatives said that FDR stood for Feather Duster Roosevelt. Uh, Walter Lippmann, the most prominent sage of his time, called him a rather amiable young man with no particular qualities to be president. Um, you know, John Kennedy was a pretty callow senator. I mean, there was not much to see there. And the idea that, you know, in the most serious crisis threatening humanity, whatever his private flaws, he exercised astonishingly prudent judgment and probably, probably avoided nuclear holocaust. There was no way you knew that from, from his past. Um, so, you know, the, the idea is you watch these people, you draw your own judgments. Um, who's talking what seems like sensibility? Who's the other, the other thing I'd say, there's just two other things I'd say. I asked um, uh, a historian whose name will occur to me this, later tonight. Uh, <laughs> what, um, David McCullough, what do you look for in a president? How do you, he says, you don't, you don't know, but there's two things that I want to see. And it's kind of relevant to this president. One is a sense of humor, particularly the ability to laugh at himself. The second was that great presidents generally have experienced tragedy or loss in their life, and they've had to confront it and deal with it, which is also, you know, if you think about it. So, but, but that tells you nothing. We just, we, just, we just do not, we just don't know. Um, this I, I don't know why I get a kick out of this question, but why can't the mainstream media simply ignore Trump? Take away this oxygen that fuels all narcissists. Let them talk about other more important issues and treat him like a mere figurehead. Because then you guys wouldn't watch. <laughs> I mean, you know, Trump, Trump is right about some things <coughs> and that are upsetting to consider, you know, Fifth Avenue. Um, you know, he said when, you know, when I'm gone, the media outlets are going to be upset because your ratings are all going to go down. The week, I don't remember what the numbers are exactly, but the week after the Mueller report, which disappointed a lot of people, came, right, people's ratings went. Morning Joe went down. Yep. Um, Rachel Maddow went down. Uh, a lot of places went down. Fox and uh, CNN uh, mostly, and MSNBC to some extent both dropped. Fox kind of stayed the same. Yeah. Yeah, but and also, look, you know, uh, my, um, the White House is a dumb proviso notwithstanding. Uh, the president says stuff. The president does stuff. He's the president. That's, that's news. It's like it's impossible to ignore <coughs> it. I think they could ignore it more. I think they could cover it better. I think they could say lies more often. Um, I think there are ways to deal with and fact check him better. And, and maybe, um, you know, a, a subset of, of the question uh, could have been, you know, do you continue to have Sarah, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who just lies, continue to have her on, or, or Kellyanne Conway on? But... You know, when the president makes pronouncements yeah. about allies and about adversaries and makes decisions and decides, you know, you got, you got to cover that. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Now, what, what I think when Ted Koppel was here a month ago, we talked about this, that it, 
might not be a bad idea for my old employer, CNN, instead of seven hours of panels uh, all talking about precisely the same thing, to actually you know, go out and cover what's happening in the country. And if you were here, you remember why Ted Koppel said they don't do it. Money. It's way cheaper to have a bunch of people around a table in a studio than it is to send camera crews to find out what's going on with the environment under these new rules. What's going on with consumer protection now that we've got the industry's best friend as, as the head of the CF? That might be a useful thing. Um, question here about the expansion of executive power. Is, it a, is there a reasonable path towards stopping the pendulum swings, limiting the power of the imperial president, and returning the power to Congress and the states? Yes. We should do that. Okay. I'm in favor. Yes. They've heard um, a lot of long answers from me. That's an, you look, um, I think you will find, you know, one of the other things that I do, uh, apart from the podcast and the book and other stuff, is I chair a, um, a task force on democracy, with former Governor Christy Ty Whitman of New Jersey. And it's bipartisan, the Republicans and Democrats, and we chair it together through the, the, the offices of the Brennan Center at NYU Law School to try to suggest things to Congress. We had one report that came out in October. We have another one coming out in the not-too-distant future. And among the things we are proposing to Congress is how to rein in the power of the presidency. Because believe it or not, uh, a lot of how our government is run is, is on the honor system. And now people have gotten tired of hearing this, but it's not something you heard so much before. The President of the United States has a lot of ability to do a lot of crazy things that nobody's done before, but they're not unlawful, like divesting your money or pardoning whoever the hell you want. He thinks maybe even pardoning yourself or hiring your son-in-law uh, and your daughter, um, not disclosing your taxes. You know, there, there are a million things like that. And I think among the things that will be considered in the after... That happens with respect to all presidencies that will be considered and needs to be considered in the aftermath of this presidency... Uh, for which this president may have done a disservice to the people who believe in a very, very powerful executive, the unitary executive uh, thesis, I think there's going to be uh, a backlash and lots of powers will be taken. I think the pardon power needs to be re-examined, not taken away in the Constitution, but re-examined depending on the kinds of things he continues to do with his pardon power. By the way, we are out of time, but before, this is, so this is my penultimate question after the, before the ultimate one. Um, a lot of people who are on the left who are so frustrated by what's going on have thrown off all of these notions like, for instance, uh, let's figure out a way around the Electoral College. Uh, we really need two senators from every state. Once we get the Senate and the presidency, let's put three or four, I don't know how many more justices on the Supreme Court. Now, I'll just tell you, you know, revealing my best, I think this is, these are, this is not the way to go to fix things. But do you think that there's merit in, in this stuff? No, I don't know. Um... I mean, I'm also a pragmatist. There's a lot of things that are doable that we should be focusing on and trying to get done, and there's some things that I think are really hard. And maybe they're a talking point. I mean, I, I understand people's frustration with the Electoral College. I think there are a lot of problems with the Electoral College. Um, whether or not there is, is will, given the nature of how you amend the Constitution, to do something like that and how much energy should be spent on it, I'm not sure. But I don't... I don't think people who are upset about the Electoral College are barking up the wrong tree. I think adding Supreme Court justices is difficult. Um, I do think one thing that is also extremely difficult, but that I've become a little bit more interested in, and that's limits on the Supreme Court. Because if you, if you look at... 
because it's not turning out the way it's supposed to be. First of all, everyone lives forever now. Uh, and you know, if you believe that over a course of time, over a course of like half a century at least, that generally speaking, elections are supposed to matter and they do matter, that if you have 30 years of Republican rule and 20 years of Democratic rule, that over the course of that time, given chance and everything else, that you'd have about 30% appointed by Republicans. That's not true. I've, I used to know these numbers off the top of my head, but it's like something like 80% you know, versus, versus, versus 20%. And Republicans have had an inordinate number, uh, and I would say the same thing if it was the other way around, and people would be up in arms the other way around, that you're not getting actually a Supreme Court over time that's reflective of political choices in the country because there's also all these abilities to hang on too long yeah. and to time your retirement. I would just, as a footnote, note that for several decades, Republican presidents were appointing justices who turned out to be liberal. Yes, they don't make, they don't make that mistake anymore. Yeah, they sure don't. And by the way, the reason people aren't freaking out even more and, 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 and it doesn't jump out at people that you've had like basically 80% versus 20% appointed. I mean, Carter had none. Trump might have three. Uh, is because of is because of is because of accident and because people don't remember that some of those justices that they like, if you're a progressive, were appointed in error by the Republican president. Um, okay, so I ask every guest here: if you were to return here five years ago, I mean five years from now, I'd like to return five years. Yeah, ago. yeah, I understand. That's a whole. I'm other. all into coming back five years ago. Time machine would come in handy, wouldn't it? <laughs> um, if you were to come back here in five years. As a private citizen, as maybe something else, do you think you would find things had over the over that period the, the the quote the laughingly called foreseeable future? You anticipate better times ahead, worse times, or are we just going to muddle along? So I, I I the way I get by, and what I believe is optimism, and I believe in hope, and I do, and I'll, I'll tell you a quick story that I that I recited on the podcast today, and it's um my daughter just turned eighteen. And she called me over to her computer over the weekend, which was, I was so excited that she was speaking to me. And, <laughs> and, she, and, she, and not only that, she was, she was asking for some assistance on something. And I went over and I didn't know if it was a homework assignment or like some email she wanted me to look at. And it was her online voter registration form. And she, who never asked, she wanted me to proofread it and, and look it over because it was, she's pretty, um, you know, uh, attention to detail oriented. But, but she, she didn't want to mess it up before she printed it out because she really, really wants to vote in the fall. And that's true of her friends and, and my other two children who were younger. They're really, really excited to vote. And when I see that and you see the tragedy of Parkland um, that's horrible and, and unspeakable, but then you see all these kids who have decided to speak out and use their voice and talk in a way to adults that I think adults are astonished by, and I think it's awesome. And, and I come down, <coughs> and I come, I come down, I, you know, my wife and I came downstairs one day, and my, our kids are making signs. And I'm like, what is this, the 60s? Because uh, I grew up in the 80s, and we like sort of missed that whole thing. And I see how much energy there is. I, I just have, I have a lot of faith and confidence in renewed activism on the part of young people, and younger people going to Congress, and younger people caring about things, that, um, that I believe when I am back here in five years, things will be better. Okay. Well, I have no idea if, you're, if you come back and I'm somewhere other than a home with soft walls. Uh, but I, what I do think is what you've, what you've demonstrated tonight, it, it, rather dramatically, is that 
what we really are going to be benefiting from over these next few years is your voice on the public air. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. 92i Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92iondemand.org.